The text for this morning is Joshua 7, 10 through 12. Joshua 7, 10 through 12. These words, So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. So far the text. After the sermon, we'll sing hymn 18, 1 and 3. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what a wonderful beginning it had been. Israel had crossed the Jordan River, Israel had come to Jericho, and Israel had taken Jericho. Just like that. In a most miraculous way. All Israel had to do was march around Jericho, and the walls came crashing down, and they went right in. But then came Ai. And what a humiliating defeat. What a discouragement. Ai was a smaller place than Jericho, but they couldn't take it. Brothers and sisters, the Lord God was showing his people that his people cannot play games with him. There was only one way God's people could enter the promised land, and that was by faith and obedience. And that's the lesson that the Lord God was showing his people in the defeated Ai. And so I formulate it as follows. Defeat at Ai. The Lord shows that he demands faith and obedience. We know three things. First of all, prayer rejected. Secondly, perversion revealed. And thirdly, punishment required. Defeat at Ai. The Lord shows that he demands faith and obedience. We know prayer rejected, perversion revealed, and punishment required. The chapter tells us clearly that Ai was a smaller place than Jericho. Actually, you could hardly call it a city. It was more like a settlement. And when the spies came back to Joshua, they said, all we need is a couple of thousand men, and we could take it. So 3,000 men went. And lo and behold, they ran. 
and we're told that 36 men were killed. Now, if you do the math a little bit this morning, then you might say, well, that's not really that high a percentage. 36 out of 3,000, that's about 1%. That's not really too bad. But the chapter speaks of it as a great defeat, a great loss, and that's because they had taken Jericho without one casualty. And now this tremendous loss. And we read that this loss sent shockwaves through the camp of Israel. And it's portrayed for us in a very graphic way. We read that their hearts melted within them and became like water. And we read that Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothes, fell down before the ark of the Lord, covered their heads with dust. It was the supreme display of utmost sorrow and despair in Israel. And Joshua prayed. He prayed to God, and we read his prayer this morning. It was a moving prayer filled with despair. And Joshua said to the Lord, Lord, if this has now happened, what will be the outcome? The peoples will rally against us, will be wiped out, and what will become of your name, your holy name? It'll be ridiculed. This God couldn't protect his own people. But brothers and sisters, as pious as this prayer of Joshua sounded, Joshua was blaming God. Joshua was not engaging in introspection. Joshua was not looking at Israel and asking what the problem may have been with Israel. Joshua was looking at God, and Joshua was pointing the finger to God and saying, basically, God, you let us down. Because we read in chapter 7, verse 7, that Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we had be content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. How quickly, brothers and sisters, Joshua lost confidence in God and blamed God. And now before we become too harsh on Joshua, we should ask ourselves, doesn't that sound familiar? Don't we also often neglect to look at ourselves and instead look at God and ask, God, why did you let this happen? Why did you let my business collapse? Why did you let my marriage go sour? Why did you let me get this illness? Why did you let me have this accident? Lord, what have you done? Rather, we should be looking at ourselves and asking, what did I do 
that may have led to this. Now, we do have to be very careful, brothers and sisters, and not make a simple causal connection between misfortunes that we experience in life and sin. It's not that you can say, oh, because this happened, therefore there must have been some special sin that led to it. The Lord Jesus made very clear to his disciples in John 9, verse 3, that you cannot always make that simple causal connection between sin and hardships in life. When his disciples saw that man born blind, they started to ask whether perhaps he had sinned or his parents had sinned and therefore he was born blind. And the Lord Jesus said, no. Neither this man has sinned nor his parents. But sometimes there is that causal connection. I only need to remind you of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, and the situation in the church at Corinth where they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, but they had turned the Lord's Supper into a gluttonous feast for some. And Paul had to write the congregation, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. God was punishing his church for the sin that his church was allowing to live within its midst. And so, brothers and sisters, it's good sometimes for us to engage in introspection when things happen to us and ask ourselves, did I maybe cause this to happen? So when our business goes sour, maybe we should ask ourselves, did I engage in corrupt business practices? Was I a fair player on the market? When our marriage goes sour, maybe we should ask ourselves, were we both living as Christian couples? Was I a Christian husband? Was I a Christian wife? When we get an illness, Maybe we should ask, did I lead an immoral lifestyle which led to this terminal illness? When we have an accident, maybe we should look closely at the circumstances and ask if I hadn't been drunk or if I hadn't been stoned. Would this ever have happened? Instead, we sometimes ask, Lord, why did this ever happen? Why didn't you prevent this? You see, brothers and sisters, God had promised Israel success right at the beginning. They'd conquer the whole promised land because he was going to go with them. And so we read in chapter 1, verse 3, that the Lord said, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. And we read in the verses 7 and 8, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, 
and then you will have good success. God had laid it out for his people, plain and simple. If you walk in faith and obedience, everything will be fine. You'll take the land. That was God's promise. And James tells us, in James 1 verse 17, that with a father there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so the Lord rejected Joshua's prayer. We read in verse 10 of our text, So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Sin had been committed. And the Lord points it out. Perversion revealed. We read in chapter 7, 11, and most of 12, the following, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. God pointed out sin. And sin is perversion in God's eyes. And so, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, they came to Achan. And he had to admit, he confessed, that he took a beautiful cloak, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Now, if you were to convert those values in today's dollars, it would probably amount to about thirty dollars or $40,000. For most of us seated here today, that's a sizable amount of money. But in the grand scheme of things, with everything that Jericho had to offer, it wasn't that much. And you ask yourself, why did 36 men have to die because of that? One man stole, and it was only about thirty or $40,000 worth, and Israel had to lose the battle. Why? Well, that's because, brothers and sisters, these things were devoted things. Our translation that we're using today here speaks about them as accursed things. Another translation calls them things under a ban. And what it all means is that, it's a difficult Hebrew word to translate, what it all means is that these things were devoted to the Lord either to be consecrated to his use or consecrated to destruction. And so we read in Joshua that God had said, you must destroy everything and everyone in Jericho, but the silver and the gold are to go into the treasury of the Lord. So things were either devoted to destruction or things were devoted to sacred use. And that's what made this so serious. And furthermore, there was a symbolic significance because God did not give this restriction in the case of Ai. 
You can read in chapter 8 that they were allowed to plunder Ai, but not Jericho. It was all devoted to the Lord, and that's because Jericho was the first city that Israel took in the Promised Land, and the Lord was making a point. Just as that first city was the gateway to the whole Promised Land, so Israel had to remember that the whole Promised Land belonged to God. It was His, and they were receiving it as a gift of grace. And by devoting everything in Jericho to the Lord, whether that be to destruction or to sacred use, Israel would be indicating thereby that they wanted to live by grace. They wanted to do it God's way. And then you see something of the depth of Achan's sin. He stole from God. He broke the covenant. Basically, brothers and sisters, Achan committed the sin of the first paradise. God had said to Adam and Eve, it's all at your disposal, but serve me with it. And the devil came and said, no, take it for yourself. And so they stood there in front of that tree and they took of the forbidden fruit. They wanted to live for themselves. They didn't want to walk in faith and obedience. They wanted to build their own little kingdoms. They had fallen in love with this world. And they broke the covenant. They'd fallen in love with this world. And that was what Achan did too. He wanted to live for himself. He wanted to enrich himself. He had fallen in love with this world. And you know what John says in his first letter, 1 John 2, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's a temptation that we all face, each one of us. Are we going to walk in faith and obedience? Are we going to serve God? Or are we going to live for ourselves? Are we going to do it our own way? Are we going to build our own kingdoms? And think of it, brothers and sisters. God was busy leading his people to the second paradise. The promised land was going to be a foreshadowing of the new earth. Everyone was going to sit under his own vine and fig tree. It was going to be a land of milk and honey. It was going to be a place of peace and prosperity. It was a microcosm of the new earth that God was preparing for his people. And as God was leading his people to the second paradise, lo and behold, Achan committed the sin of the first paradise. And it showed right at the outset, that sin would always plague God's people in Canaan. As wonderful as it would be, sin would always be a reality. And so what happened at Ai 
the sin of Jericho called out for a Savior, Jesus Christ, called out for redemption. And I want you to notice, brothers and sisters, that in our text, the Lord spoke about this perversion in the plural. Verse 11, remember, Achan had sinned, he alone had stolen. But in verse 11 we read that God says, Israel has sinned, Israel, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. They, they, they. This wasn't just about Achan. God was speaking in the plural. And what that tells us, brothers and sisters, is that as an individual member of God's covenant, as an individual member of God's people, what you do has consequences for the others, whether that be good or whether that be bad. Even sin has consequences for the others. And that's why sin in the covenant community cannot remain unaddressed. That's why we confess in Lord's Day 30 of our Heidelberg Catechism that if sin is left unaddressed, the covenant of God is profaned and His wrath kindled against the whole congregation. That's what happened at Ai. And think of it, the people of Israel were traveling to Mount Ebal. First they came to Jericho, then they came to Ai, and that was all en route to Mount Ebal because Moses had stipulated, when you enter the Promised Land, go to Mount Ebal and worship the Lord your God there in covenant fellowship. That's where they were heading. You read about it in chapter 8. But how could God's people worship at Mount Ebal like this? They'd broken the covenant. They'd stolen from the Lord. They'd fallen in love with the world. They couldn't. God demands faith and obedience. But God's people contend with unbelief and disobedience. And God said, they have become devoted to destruction. They have become doomed to destruction. That was the reality. And then we read about punishment required. There was a curse upon God's people now. And unless there was punishment to deal with that reality, the curse would remain and it would destroy God's people. We read in verse 12, at the very end, the Lord says, neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Punishment was required. And so, Achan was stoned and burned. His family was stoned 
and burned. Those things that he stole were burned. And you ask yourself, why did his family have to die too? Well, some commentators say it's hard to imagine that Achan could have stolen all of that and then dug a hole under his tent without a single family member having noticed. So they're partly responsible. Well, the chapter doesn't say that. We don't know. And we shouldn't seek our answer in that direction. The whole family was punished, brothers and sisters, because of the serious character of the sin as I explained it. The covenant had been broken. And in his covenantal dealings, the Lord works through the generations. There are consequences down the line. And so they all had to die. Then you might ask, that was a horrible punishment. To be stoned to death and then burned? Does that also mean that they were condemned to hell? Well, you should be very careful. We shouldn't render that kind of judgment because in 7 verse 20 we read that Achan confessed his sin. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. He confessed. It took him a long time, but he did confess. And we need to keep in mind that in the Old Testament, the punishments were much more physical than in the New Testament. The people of God still lived in the times of the shadows. They had to have these these graphic displays of God's anger to impress upon them that God deals with sin. But that does not mean that we need to say that Achan and his family were condemned to hell. So there they were in the Valley of Achor. And the place even received a name because of what happened there. Achor, that means trouble, and it's related to the name Achan. And every time in Israel's history God's people would mention the valley of Achor, they would be reminded of why it was called that. The valley of Achor became a reminder of the reality of sin and its punishment. And not only that, but there was also a pile of stones, a monument, a memorial, a grave marker, you might say, built over the family of Achan. And the writer even says it remains to this day, the day that he wrote. It was a visible reminder for all of God's people of the reality of sin and its punishment. And every Israelite who saw it and every Israelite who passed through the valley of Achor, and every Israelite who took the name of Achor on his lips would be reminded of his own unbelief and his own disobedience. 
there was a monument in Israel to the reality of sin and its punishment. Faith and obedience are what God requires. But unbelief and disobedience lurk in our hearts, each one of us. But God was busy leading his people into the promised land of Canaan so that one day Christ could be born of the tribe of Judah. And I want you to notice how this chapter starts. It tells us that Achan was a descendant of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. Sometimes we read those names in the Old Testament, we say, well, what's that there for? But names are important because in Matthew 1, you have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you read there that Judah had two sons by Tamar, Perez and Zerah. And then Matthew proceeds to trace the line of Perez to Jesus Christ. And you wonder why he even mentioned Zerah, because Zerah served no purpose in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the answer we can give to that question, why his name was included too in the genealogy of Christ, is partly because it reminds us of Achan. There's a contrast, and Matthew is pointing out that contrast very subtly and implicitly. On the one hand, there was Achan, identified with punishment, sin and punishment. On the other hand, there is Jesus Christ, identified with sin and deliverance. It's a contrast. On the one hand, there was Achan, who tried to enrich himself by taking of earthly riches in disobedience. And on the other hand, there is Jesus Christ, who emptied himself of heavenly riches in obedience. He came as our Savior. On the one hand, there is Achan, who brought a curse upon God's people, on the other hand, there is Jesus Christ who took our curse upon himself that he might fill us with his blessing. You see, brothers and sisters, right at the outset, right at the beginning of the conquest of Canaan, the Lord God was showing us that we need Jesus Christ as Savior. The terrible reality is that by nature, we walk in unbelief and disobedience, each one of us. But God sent his Son. And Christ had perfect faith, perfect obedience. And Christ has opened the way for us to perfect fellowship with God on the new earth, the second paradise. Amen.